Hi, my name is Beth, an alcoholic. Because of the grace of God, sponsorship, Alcoholics Anonymous, I've been sober since June 26, 1988. And I'm very grateful for that. Uh, my home group is the Fox Hall group that meets Monday nights in Cincinnati. We're not very far from here, so you're all welcome any Monday night. It's an open speaker meeting. We joke that we kind of cater to the ADD crowd. We have a 10-minute speaker and then a break, and then a 30-minute speaker, and we have cake in between. So <laughs> we get a lot of new people, but but they're staying, so that's a good thing. Um, I have a sponsor, and my sponsor has a home group, and my sponsor has a sponsor. And those are important things to me because I need somebody ahead of me doing what I I need to do. Um, she's been married for 30 years, and, and uh, Chuck and I are almost a third of the way to that. So, we, uh, you know, we have people ahead of us, and, and there were people ahead of me when I got here, and a lot of them are still ahead of me. I've, I've known Keith, uh, crossed paths with him for several years, and uh, it's just an honor to be here. I'm I want to thank the committee. I had to laugh when Judy called me. My um, procrastination hasn't totally been taken from me yet. And uh, back in junior high school, I just I would put things off, and then about the time the, the roof is going to cave in, something good. I'm thinking that the boom is going to lower, and something wonderful happens. And back in seventh grade, we had to turn our homework in two weeks at a time, and and uh, I had you know not done it, and the teacher called me up. And I'm thinking, you know, I've got all my excuses ready for why I don't have my homework. And she said, I want you out of this class. And I was getting ready to explain. And she said, you're just too far ahead of these. I'm going to put you up into eighth grade math. <laughs> she never did ask me about my homework, you know. So, <laughs> so I was supposed to mail Judy a big stack of speaker tapes and uh, put it off and put it off and I saw her on the caller ID, so I hurried, and I got them all taped, and she called back that night, and I was ready, and I gave her my whole, you know, oh, we've been so busy, and I got them, and they're in the mail, and I get done, and I hear this silence, and then she says, I was calling to ask you to speak. (laughs) (laughs) So I should learn, someday maybe I'll learn to find out what's going on before I talk. Um, I... uh, my dad was an alcoholic. I know that because he joined Alcoholics Anonymous when I was seven years old. So I didn't grow up with, you know, drunkenness in the house. I didn't, I didn't grow up with, mom was a cupboard door slammer, but that was about it. And, um, I just, I knew AA was around from the very beginning. Uh, I knew it was old guys that drank coffee and ate donuts because I'd been there and seen it myself. You know, I'm sure they were 30, uh, but I was a seven year old kid over in the corner coloring at the, at the open meeting on Friday nights in Hamilton. And, uh, and so, you know, we had Alcoholics Anonymous when I was very young in the house. And what happened because of that, I hear a lot of people say that they would sit in the bar and just go, oh, well, I'm alcoholic, here's how. And I never had that luxury because I knew that being alcoholic meant don't ever drink again and go to meetings. So, so I was, when I did start to drink, I felt bad for my dad that he'd had such a hard time um, and thought if he drank more like me, maybe he could have hung in there longer. <laughs> Because I was having fun, but but I was real careful to never even breathe the A word like in the same sentence with my name. Because around my house, I couldn't cop to having a drinking problem as you know an excuse for anything. Because they would have said go to a meeting, um, and I didn't want to stop drinking. But long before I drank, you know, this book. The longer I read it, the more I see myself in here. And and I I was not one of those people that walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and said, Oh, thank God I'm home and I want what you have. Um, I didn't stay sober my first trip through. I pretty much came through a couple times to stay out of jail or to get my kids back or both. Um, 
I didn't want what you had. Grateful people really got on my nerves. Um, I don't know. When you're like three days sober in treatment, the last thing you want to see is at least the last thing I wanted to see was some bubbly, perky AA member coming in to spread the good news, you know. But I I have what I found is a thinking problem. And um, the the book says that selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of our problem. And I thought that selfish meant I kept the big piece for myself. I took the biggest cookie. Well, finally, three months ago, I looked up selfish in the dictionary. And what it says is, totally consumed with one's own affairs to the exclusion of all others. And I went, oh, (laughs) yeah, that's me. Um, But I always thought that everybody was watching me. I was acutely aware of everybody looking at me, of everybody You know, I couldn't talk to you without being aware of the periphery over here and who was looking at me and was I animated? Am I having fun? Do I look like I have friends? That whole, like my life was a spectator sport and I was the one watching. You know, I couldn't just have a conversation. I remember the first time somewhere in my first nine months of sobriety talking to somebody and realizing that I was just having a conversation, that they were talking and I was answering because that was usually I was trying to anticipate your answer and I would have three or four up here and pick the best one and you know, be grading my conversation as I went along. There was always running commentary up here, always. And um, and I couldn't just participate because I had this whole side of my head that was evaluating and judging and tweaking and perfecting and, and how does it look, you know. And um, and this is in first grade, you know. This is not... <laughs> um, I had some other, some other rules I lived by. One was, you know, if I can't win, I don't want to play. Um... I didn't see any reason to, and, and if I wasn't good at something by the second or third time, I just thought I wasn't meant to do it, that, you know, some people play the piano and I don't, you know, it never dawned on me that they practiced for hours. I just thought you were gifted or you weren't, and I have since found out what, um, our daughter is normal, as near as we can tell, and she doesn't think like we think, you know, the more, she's a sophomore in high school now, and uh, and I always tell this story because it was the first time I really realized that we just don't think the same. Um, she wanted to be a swimmer. Some of her friends were on a swim team. So she went and took some swimming lessons, and then she tried out for the team. She's 11. And the coach told her she could be on the team, but she needed to practice with the 9- and 10-year-olds because she wasn't fast enough yet. And that was fine with her. Now, I'm thinking, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, if I was 11, I would have I said sorry, and I would have quit. And then she, um, she went to her first race, and it was a big, you know, heats and everything. When, when all the scores went up, she was 70th out of 72, and she went back. <laughs> I w- you know, it was a two-day meet. I would have been there the next day. And we told her when she started, you know, when she was 70th out of 72, we said, well, you know, they're, they're, you're, you're placing, but you're also swimming against yourself. So now you have a base time. And from here on out, if you improve your time, you have had a successful race. And I'm thinking, right, you know. <laughs> You just tell your kids this stuff. It's in the parent handbook, you know. I mean, Mike told me the exact same thing, and I would not, I wasn't buying into it even at that young age. And she swam the event the next time, and she had a better time, and she was happy, you know. Now, now what I re- what I realized is two years later, she was swimming the Junior Olympics. She was a state AA swimmer two years later. And I would have missed, if I had been her, I would have missed all of that because I would have quit the day he said I had to practice with the nine-year-olds. And actually, at, let's see, when she was 11, I was I was 36 years old and seven years sober, 
And I was having a hard time sitting at practice still because I was the mother of the 11-year-old that was swimming with the 9-year-old, you know. <laughs> People would say, which one's your daughter? And I'd be like, oh, she's the one over there with the 9-year-olds, you know. So still, I mean, she's just healthier than at least me. I don't know about Chuck, but she she doesn't stay resentful at people. You know, like I said, she's a sophomore in high school and she'll say, oh, we went to Starbucks and, and you know, Jennifer so-and-so was with us. And I'll say, oh, her. And she's like, for God's sakes, mom, that was in sixth grade. Could you let it go? You know? <laughs> she just can't hold a resentment. We don't know what to do with her, you know. We do have one with green hair and a skateboard, so we <laughs> we know what to do with him. Uh, actually, he's three years sober now. So, anyway, all of that kind of thinking with me, I wasn't even drinking yet. You know, I was I wasn't even drinking yet, and I always I had one best friend at a time. And don't talk to my friend because my friend might like you better, and then you'll be friends, and I have to find a new friend, and you'll talk about me, and then you'll tell your friends, and they'll tell their friends, and they'll tell their friends, and you know, it was just like this whole. I just knew if I walked into a room and two people leaned together and talked, they were talking about me, you know. And it might be – I could be 20 and at a high school reunion, and somebody would lean together, and I'd know they were talking about something I did in seventh grade. It's like everything I had ever done just followed me around in my head, and I thought you were off track of it too. I was a frenzy of activity. I was, you know, a cheerleader, pep club, student council, yearbook staff, you name it, you know, um, because what I have found is – I couldn't stand to be by myself. If I was by myself, and this is hindsight, but if I was by myself, my brain would start and it would say things like, you know, if you guys were away from me for a day or two, you might go, why do we hang out with her anyway, you know? We, you know, we don't even like her. And then I would have to go find new friends again. So I always, it didn't matter what commitments I had, I would go with you if you were going somewhere. And, uh, and don't talk to my friend because then she'll like you better. And uh, and what I found is that just being Beth never was enough, you know. I had to be Beth the cheerleader. I had to be Beth on the yearbook staff. I had to, even at my first trip through Alcoholics Anonymous, I was Jim Kirby's daughter. You know, I went to Oak Street where I knew I would see people that knew my dad. Because I felt like if I ever just said, hi, my name's Beth, <laughs> that that's what would happen. That you would be kind of just like, so, you know. Um, I, I didn't call people my first trip through AA because I had a huge fear of somebody saying Beth who. Uh, and it was just, you know, it, it was tremendously important to me that you know who I was. You know, I just couldn't be, and I couldn't do, I went to college and flunked out um, because I guess people that graduate from college go to class. And <laughs> But I couldn't go. I couldn't go because it was, there were too many, I mean, there would be a person in three chairs and a person the first day of class, you know, and, and I can remember thinking the second semester, I'm going to talk to somebody this time, you know, I'm going to go sit by him. And, and I would say, hi, my name's Beth, and they, in my mind would go, so, and, you know, that would be it. I just didn't know, I didn't know how people talked to each other. That when I drank, the frenzy stopped, you know. Um, I don't remember being relieved when I drank. I don't remember... You know, but I do, I remember when I drank first, what I was wearing, who I was with. I remember my first drink clearly, um, and, and it, the, the noise in my head stopped. You know, all of a sudden, I was confident, and I was funny, and, uh, and I was fun to be around. And the first year I drank, everything changed. My grades plunged. My uh, friends changed. My attitude changed. I totaled a car with three other people in it. 
And, um, you know, I was just a, a poster child for the care unit. And um, lucky for me, they didn't have adolescent treatment back then. So I didn't I didn't have to go. And, and I didn't have the consequences, like I said. I didn't have – I was like this guy in the cartoon that walks in the safe and the piano is falling behind him. You know, I, I totaled this car. There was no DUI. There was no license suspension. I got a bill from Butler County for the bridge. And I got hurt the worst, so I just thought that was as it should be since I was driving. I was longest in the hospital. I mean, I had pins in my ankle and, and just spent months and months on crutches, but that didn't stop me from drinking, you know. And I loved to drink. From the beginning, I could drink a lot, you know, and I drank with the big boys. Um, I never really liked women much. I didn't particularly like women much. Um, they were competition or they were of no consequence to me for the most part, or, you know, drinking, they, they fall down and they threw up or they giggled or, or they were trying to take my boyfriend or they were mad if I was screwing theirs and it just wasn't, you know, I just, and, and plus, if you're going to meet him, you never know when you're going to meet him. And if you come with your friend, it's hard to leave with him. So I was pretty much, I might meet you at the bar, but I didn't, I didn't really drink with women a lot. Um, and, and that's another thing, you know, when I got to AA and they said, hang with the women, and it was like hearing the gates of hell just clang shut. <laughs> I just thought, you got to be kidding me. I didn't even drink with women. Um, but I drank a lot. I loved it. I just, I loved to drink. Um, my day just went better with a drink. Morning drinking didn't bother me, you know. I mean, because when you're in school, you have to drink in the morning so you can sober up before school's over. So I just kind of carried that in, you know. <laughs> To the rest of my life, and, and I could drink a lot, and I lived in a college town, and we did, you know, we had some drugs passed through. We kind of had a drug of the week that was passing through. Um, but what I have come to discover is I, I suffer from the disease of alcoholism. You know, uh, I did a lot of drugs. They were around. Um, but as they begin to interfere with my drinking over the years, they had to go. You know, I mean, I, I was a big dope smoker in high school. By the time I was 24 or 25, if I'd had even two beers and, and smoked to join, I was paralyzed for an hour and it's hard to drink when you can't move so so the pot had to go you know um diet pills those were great you could drink for days you know and and taking a quaalude to me just meant blacking out at eight o'clock so i didn't take them um i just you know um cocaine was my i'm not drinking drug <laughs> you know because uh nothing nothing tastes good um but that was it, you know, but the whole thing is it was all around the drinking. If I took it, it was so I could drink more or so I wouldn't drink or because I didn't have enough money to get drunk. Um, and, and as they interfered with the drinking, one by one, they dropped off. So I pretty much I started out drinking, and I ended up drinking with just a big blip of drug use in the middle um, because ultimately alcoholism is my problem, you know. When I take a drink, that drink takes a drink, and that drink, it takes me. It doesn't matter what I have on my schedule, and it doesn't matter what commitments I have to my children. You know, the drinking becomes paramount. And a couple of trips through, I heard, you know, through in treatment that alcohol makes your choices for you, and it picks your friends for you. And I thought that was ridiculous, you know. And after I got sober, I realized my children had never seen the inside of a McDonald's, you know, because they don't sell beer. Um, I would take them to a drive through if I had a bottle of rum and I could get a big Coke, but we didn't go to McDonald's. And down in Cincinnati, it's a German town, and, you know, it's a good thing that the zoo sold beer or my kids wouldn't have seen anything. You know, we just flat out didn't go where they drove across town to a big swimming pool at Coney Island because they sold beer there. It dictated everything I ever did. You know, it dictated every job I ever took. It dictated who my friends were and who my friends weren't. Um, and I couldn't see it when I was in the middle of it, you know. Um, I ended up, like I said, I flunked out of school. 
I went to Florida because I knew Ohio was my problem. This time of year, you get these beautiful days like this, and then three days later, there's a foot of snow on the ground, and I had just had enough of this. And I went to Florida, and I've got a friend who says they should just put a sign right at the state line of Florida, California, and Arizona that says, this state doesn't work either. (laughs) (laughs) But I was in a little undeveloped town on the Gulf Coast, and, uh, and it was everybody. Now, that's where I was home. When I got to Bonita Springs, I was home. It was three traffic lights, two Dairy Queens, and a dog track in 1970. There was nothing there. Uh, and everybody drank like me. And, I mean, down, the whole town, you have to understand, the whole town was three miles long, and people would buy a beer to drink on the way to the bar. Those are my kind of people, you know. And uh, and I fell into a job down there. I had worked at a King Quick up here, which is a convenience store. And when I got down there, I got a job. You know, she hired me, and it was so transient down there, and everybody was so alcoholic that if you showed up for work two or three days in a row, you were management material. So... <laughs> By the time I called my mom to tell her, oh, by the way, I moved to Florida, uh, it was like, but don't worry, I'm assistant manager of this store. And she just, you know, she just said, how can you do anything this stupid and land on your feet? But I always did. You know, I always did. I just counted on it. And um, my drinking caught up with me there, and uh, I was really certain of having to think about moving back to Ohio. Didn't want to. Um, for one thing, it would have broken another one of those things. I, I, I live by all these rules my parents never taught me, you know. And, and another one is, like, never, ever, ever admit when you're wrong, you know. It's like, I bought this ticket to the Titanic, and I am taking the boat ride. And, um, and if I had left Florida and come back to Ohio, then I would have been saying I made a mistake moving. I was wrong. I can't take care of myself. I can't support myself. And, you know, anything's better than that. And, uh, but I was thinking I had, I was, I was out of guys to date and I was out of places to work and, and, uh, you know, as luck would have it, along came this guy who just had everything I was looking for. You know, he had a house and a car and a job and, uh, and that was, you know, that's true love to me. Um, and he was six foot two and had tattoos and a motorcycle on top of that. It just didn't get any better. And, um, and so I married him, you know, (laughs) and we ended up, we were married. That was like the five five-year one-night stand, and um, and we had two kids, and it was just, it was crazy in the marriage. Um, you know, a lot of times we were scraping our change together to buy beer. Um, you know, he, he has never said he's alcoholic, so I can't, but it was real easy to look good next to me, so who knows? You know, if he, if he ever had to stand next to somebody normal, I don't know how he'd stack up. He just keeps marrying people like me. Um, but we, you know, we had five years. We ended up, we moved to the Keys. That was another one of those Went 4th of July weekend, liked it, came home on Tuesday, moved on Friday. We had a six-month-old baby and $400, but, hey, let's move to the Keys. And I got a job at an oceanfront property at the Upper Keys, you know, seven bars, three restaurants, um, assistant, you know, floor manager of the restaurant, and uh, called mom. By the way, we moved to the Keys, you know, and I could just kind of see her going, oh, my God. But it was just, you know, when Bill Wilson said I had arrived, I mean, I am at this oceanfront property. I ended up getting a job as the night auditor there. I moved out of the restaurant into the night audit. And I had no idea what a night auditor did, but I thought, hey, what the heck, I knew this girl had gotten fired. Well, I found out, you know, she made twice as much money as I did. So I got a raise, and then they gave me the keys to all seven bars. You know, (laughs) it was like they didn't have to pay me, you know, with that. But but I had the keys to these bars, and my job was to go around and and close out every bar at night. And I look back at that hotel, and it's like there's times in my life that I look back, and it's so surreal, you know. It's like that couldn't have happened that way. 
And everybody who worked at this place was a drunk. You know, I mean, the security guards were all bikers. And this is a $100 a room hotel in the in the early 80s, you know. And the security guards were bikers, and we would lock the elevator and just do drugs right off the bar after we closed out. It was just a wonderful, wonderful place to work. <laughs> and, uh, and I got fired because I went to happy hour at 5 and was still there at 11 and um, unable to work. And I was devastated because I kind of suspected by now that probably I wasn't going to find another job quite like that anywhere else. So I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. It was 1983, and I went to the Key Largo Tuesday night meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, and they were very nice. And I stood up and said, my name's Beth. I'm an alcoholic. And that's the first time I ever, ever said that. You know, I have been to some meetings with my dad, but I would say, my name's Beth. I'm with him. And, um, you know, but I went to this meeting and knew I had a problem with alcohol and I'd lost my job. And, and they were nice. And I just couldn't, you know, it was like a little circle of tears discussion meeting. And, and I used to say, you know, I couldn't put my finger on why I was uncomfortable there. And then I thought for a while, I thought, well, there just was nobody I would have drank with there. That's what it was, you know. And, and later, a couple years ago, I realized, no, I drank with anybody. So there just was nobody there I would have started drinking with, you know. <laughs> nobody I would have sought out to get going. But I went, and then, I, you know, as luck would have it, the girl who'd replaced me, they hated. She didn't want to work full-time anyway, so I called my boss. I know I have a problem going to AA. They gave me my job back. I went to the Friday night Key Largo meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and said I got my job back, and that was about it for me in AA. Um, but I called my dad and told him that I went to a meeting. And I got a box from him that week, and it had a big book and a 12 and 12, and a, uh, each day a new beginning and a one day at a time and a tape of his lead and another 24-hour-a-day book. I mean, I don't know how long he had been throwing this stuff in the box. Just figure <laughs> someday maybe I'll get to mail it to her, you know. Um, but it was just on. You know, I went through periods of not drinking down there. Um, we had... We finally got in a little bit of trouble. I I, uh, I thought it was a little part-time job for extra money, and Monroe County thought it was trafficking cocaine. So uh, I was in some big trouble down there and uh, ended up getting to move back up here uh, with three to five years on the shelf down there. So I transferred up here on probation, got a divorce. By now I had my daughter. So in 1984, I moved back up here and just, I don't know, I went to I went to AA, you know. I went to AA. Young People's was real strong in Cincinnati then. I was 25 years old. And um, people just weren't remembering my name, you know. I mean, they weren't, and they were all talking to each other. It's just like when I went to college. They were all talking to each other. They had stuff to say. They all seemed to know what they were talking about. And there was me, you know. Now, I don't know that I ever stood up and said I was new because then you would know I was new. And uh, I, I didn't want to be new. I wanted to start two years sober, you know. <laughs> Having been new now, I know why, you know. Although I did get to two years sober and go, why did I want to start here? Um <laughs> But, uh, you know, I just couldn't, I just couldn't get comfortable there, you know. And there were a couple of times, I know one night I, I was just filled with the presence of God at the meeting, you know. Just all of a sudden I knew, and I had a bottle of rum in my car, and I mean, after the meeting, I threw the rum out, you know, and, and I said my prayers, and I just was overwhelmed with the presence of God. But what happened is I didn't follow that with any action. I didn't go back to meetings. I didn't call anybody. Um, one thing I hear a lot is that moment of clarity, and, and I'm coming to believe that we have more than one. We don't just get one, and if we miss it, we're screwed. You know, God is there all the time. When I am let down enough that God can get my attention, you know, I remember having an overwhelming sense of the presence of God. In high school, I read a book. I was reading a, just a Christian fictional book, and just this this soaring, you know, feeling 
But I went to the bookstore and tried to find another book exactly like that one, you know. And so what I found is that I was always trying to go back and redo, you know. And God's deal is that you keep moving forward and just trust that he's going to be there. And I would try to go back and recreate that feeling. And that was a feeling I looked for all the time I was drinking. I would, If I was just at this party or if I was just at this place or if I was just with him, you know, very rarely did I have that sense of just being where I was supposed to be. So, you know, two or three times looking back, clearly I love when Bill Wilson talks about um, that, you know, when the experience in the Winchester Cathedral came back on him. And um, I probably won't be able to find it now. But basically he says, you know, that experience in the Winchester Cathedral came back over him and he realized that God had been with him and then it had been blotted out by worldly clamors, you know. And that's what I realized that for me the worldly clamors is got to have that boyfriend, got to have that job. What You know, I don't have any friends in AA. My friends are at the bar. You know, all of that outside stuff that I need to fix me. And that's what happened every time I was trying to go backwards and do it over. You know, God was back here, so let me go. Um, and, and so I did have more than one, you know, shot at clarity, but I, I never followed it up with any action. One of the things Johnny Harris says that I love is if you think God will do it all for you, lock yourself in a closet, and when you get hungry, pray for a hot dog. You know, <laughs> there's actions I have to take, and the difference between all those other times with the presence of God and this time is that this time I took some action. You know, in 1988, when I finally landed in detox, um, I didn't have any better ideas, you know. And, and in the midst of that, the three years in Ohio before I got sober, um, my children were taken away from me. I was charged with child endangerment because I lived down the street from a bar and I left them alone in bed and I went to drink, you know. And uh, it's the grace of God that my mom could take care of them. Because I, I used to say when my mom took my kids, but she didn't. Hamilton County took them. And they wouldn't have said, oh, never mind, Beth, you know, if my mom wouldn't have taken them. My kids would have been out in foster care somewhere. And I didn't set out to be that kind of mom, you know. I mean, I didn't set out to tell my kids, yes, I love you, go away, you know. But that's what they got from me. I love you, go away. I love you, go watch TV. I love you, go play with your sister. Of course I love you, get away from me. Because I had, I just was bankrupt. I didn't have anything to give them. And my daughter, you know, their room was filthy. I just, I just couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't get up early enough to get them to daycare. But if I didn't get them to daycare by 10, then I was stuck with them all day. And my idea of quality time with them was finding somebody else's mommy who drank, and the kids would play, and we would drink. And that was absolutely the best I could do. And I would go to get my daughter out of the crib in the morning, and the blanket might have tucked in her, you know, sometimes babies, the sheet tucks in the diaper and soaks everything. And I would think, oh, i got to do something about that. But I'd be drinking by noon. And I have the disease of alcoholism, and when I drink, I keep drinking. Once I have alcohol in my system, it's on, you know, and I would go to put her to bed and remember and see that crib, and I couldn't take that two minutes to change the crib, and I would lay a blanket down and say, tomorrow, tomorrow I'll, I'll clean it. Tomorrow will be different. Tonight I'll come home on time. Tonight I won't be out till 3. Tomorrow I'll get up and we'll go to the zoo. You know, and, and the book says delusion. It doesn't say denial, and um, and that's what it was because every single time I said that, I meant it. I believed it. I believed I would come home at 11 tonight, not, you know, three in the morning with God knows who. I believe that tomorrow we'll go to the zoo or tomorrow I won't drink, you know, because I get sidetracked. I'd take him to the zoo and we couldn't look. I'd get a beer. We'd go see the bears and then we'd go to the bathroom. And by then I had to leave. I mean, I, I took him, but they couldn't look at anything. You know, it was, we may as well have driven by. There's the zoo. Um, that's the kind of mom I was. That wasn't the kind of mom I set out to be. 
You know, and, and when my mom had them, I was relieved. I was relieved because deep down I knew I, did, I didn't want them. I did not want those children. They interfered with my drinking. Uh, and I couldn't have put it in those words, but I knew they couldn't get the care from me they needed. And when they were at my mom's, they got red too, and they were clean, and their clothes matched, you know. Um, I, I am so grateful to her because they got to school every day, you know, in that good neighborhood. And I just drank. My dad died while I was in treatment. I went into treatment to avoid that um, child endangerment charge. And um, my dad died while I was in there, and I was devastated because I was going to go be Jim's daughter at Up Street, and uh, and it didn't work out that way. And I inherited a boatload of money, and um, you know, ten thousand more dollars, and somebody else would be standing here. It just what I got to do was drink the way I wanted to drink for two and a half years. And when the money was gone, I was tired. You know, I was just tired. My mom had my kids. I just I wasn't even showing up on weekends to pick them up. Uh, it was, I was just done. And I ended up, I ran off to Florida early in June 1988 because I knew everybody had been sitting down there saying, God, I wish Beth would come back. I really miss her, you know. <laughs> I've been gone four years. And, you know, I thought, when it says in full flight from reality and the doctor's opinion, I thought that was a bit harsh when I was new. And it's like, you know, you don't know how far you've been until you get back. Um, but I ended up, long story short, I ended up in, uh, in detox in Cincinnati, June 26, 1988, because I had been in Florida. I took mom's credit card. Of course, I had no money, and uh, and I, the credit card got tired, and I was tired, and I was in the Fort Myers Airport on June 26, and uh, I didn't even have enough money for a beer, for one drink. Somebody else would be standing here, because if I can get one drink, you know, then I can get two. Um, and I remember scoping out some old ladies. There's a lot of retired people. I'm thinking, well, I could just snatch a purse, you know, and take some money, but I had one of those hangovers where I knew I would pick the lady that was, she was 80, but doing aerobics, and she'd <laughs> run me down, take her purse back, and beat the crap out of me. <laughs> and I still couldn't look bad, you know, I don't like to look bad, so I called mommy, <laughs> and uh, and she um, she told me when she, she charged the plane ticket, she said, I'm not flying you home, I'm flying the children's mother home. And the only reason we're doing it is because we're afraid we'll never see you again. And she picked me up at the airport, and she dropped me off at, at the detox. And uh, and I wasn't real happy about that. I thought we were going home. Um, but what happened, because I landed there and said, go in or go out, you know, I don't care, but you're not coming home with me. And all of a sudden, I was accountable for my own recovery, you know. And I got into this detox place, and somebody said something about a halfway house, and I just thought, oh, what the hell, I got time, you know. So I, I made arrangements to go into a halfway house, but not for a month because I had, I had some pending charges and an impounded car and little details to clear up first. And I got out of detox, and I went to Oak Street, which is the Cincinnati Clubhouse. Um, and I went the first day. I got a hotel room to stay in because I kind of knew if I went where I lived that I would drink. And, um, and I got a hotel on the bus line because I, couldn't, I got out on a Friday of 4th of July weekend. I got out of detox. So I couldn't even get to my car or into this women's hotel I was supposed to go into till the next Tuesday. And I just found a hotel with no bar and a pool on the bus line. And I would, you know, and, and I just went to Oak Street. You know, I just went. And I almost didn't, you know. I, hey, I've been going to meetings four or five days. I could take a night off. But it was kind of like this voice said, that's what you did last time, Beth. You know, that's what you did and you drank. You skipped meetings and you drank. You know, I had a lot. I was real good for about the first year on the what not to do when you get out of treatment and talk, you know, because I, I had done all that stuff. I had been to treatment. I had sat in treatment and thought, it's just not bad enough yet, you know. When it's bad enough, I always had this delusion that when it was bad enough, I could quit. 
And what I didn't realize until I went to a friend of mine is, you know, he stood at Oak Street and told me it must not be bad enough yet, Beth. And a month later, he tried to kill himself, and he didn't die, you know. And he had a drug-induced stroke, and he's paralyzed at 39 years old. And, um, and that's the first time I realized that once I'm drinking, I don't have the power to say it's bad enough. You know, that it was the grace of God that I was between drinks when I agreed to take some action, you know, and, and I was just surrendered. I did not have one better idea. If you're new, I just, I hope you were out of ideas, you know. Um, I sat there that day, and every single plan I could come up with, I had tried, and it had failed, you know. Nobody left to borrow money from, nowhere left to work, uh, and so all of a sudden Oak Street was looking pretty darn good. And uh, and I went that night, and there was a guy there who I'd been a counselor at a treatment center I'd been in, and I asked him if I could talk to him after the meeting, and I just said, you know, I thought if I could look you in the eye and tell you I got out of detox today, maybe I could tell, you know, maybe it would break some other patterns too. And he's the first guy I looked in the eye and told the truth to. And uh, and I just went back the next day, and that second night at Oak Street, I'm standing there, and I said, I always call it kind of the new guy chair. They're rows face the front, and they're against the wall. And I knew if you sit in back, you know, if you sit in back, we know you're new. Uh, and if you sit in the front, you have to talk to people, and I couldn't do that. So I sat in the second row, you know, so. <laughs> and, uh, and it was time to pray, and the wall is here. And I can just remember thinking, I am never, ever going to get this right. You know, it's like I don't even have a hand to hold. And I just hung my head, and somebody in front turned around and took my hand. And just the relief that flooded over me, I can't tell you. You know, I came back the next day. I never have found out who that was. You know, I never have found out. But it's like if I'm chairing a meeting and you see me standing waiting to pray, look behind you because if there's somebody that doesn't have a hand to hold, we will not be starting. You know, that is 12-step work too um, because of what that person did that night, I came back the next day. And I just kept showing up. Um, and I started going to big book meetings. I had this arrangement, you know, to go into this halfway house in a month. And they had noon big book meetings, so I went um, – for all the wrong reasons. I went because I knew you're supposed to read your book every day, and that should count, right? They read it out loud at the meeting. And I went because it was at noon, so I had the rest of my day free. And I went because they read the whole chapter, so it chews up half of the hour, so chances were good that maybe I wouldn't have to talk. You know, that's why I went to Noon Big Book. Now, God's got a, a, a wicked sense of humor, because what happened is I started to hear stuff that I don't see when I'm reading. You know, I hear it when you read it. I don't see, especially new, I don't know about guys, but my attention span was like this, and I could close the book and it would be gone, or I'd be, you know, I'd even be reading, and it'd be like, on the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those, I wonder if I can get my car out of impound, and I heard they're hiring at McDonald's, and that guy's pretty cute over there, and important appointment was not met. Those men were not drinking. I wonder if she's dating him. You know, I mean, I just... So it was good to have it read to me, you know what I mean? Because it was not real productive on my own. The other thing that happened is I forgot I had no life. So, you know, I had my day free at 1 o'clock, but big deal, you know. So I would go back to Oak for a nighttime meeting. And uh, and I'd go at 6 or 7 o'clock because I really had nothing else to do. I didn't like where I was living, and that saved my life. Um, if I'd had a comfortable apartment, who knows. But I was I went to Oak Street a lot. And the third thing that was a result of my oh, totally lazy motives for big book meetings was that I have found over the years that people who go to big book meetings tend to read the book and do what it says. And so unwittingly, I had thrust myself into the middle of the most active people in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and I got drug out to institution meetings, and I got I was answering the phone at intergroup at a week or two sober, and, and, uh, 
just just active, just plunged into the middle, you know. And what happened is by the time the month was up, I made the decision not to go to the halfway house. I had already done a fourth and fifth step. You know, a lady said to me, why don't you do a fourth step? You've been around before. And I kind of, I went, oh, okay. I mean, I didn't know that I could say I wasn't ready yet or, you know, I mean, she just said do it. And I went, yeah, why not? So I wrote an inventory and I was starting to struggle with should I go to this halfway house or not? And a lady said something that changed my life um, because I was really, should I go, shouldn't I? And people who had been to the halfway house were telling me that I was already doing what they were going to teach me to do. You know, I was working, I was going to meetings, I was, I had done an inventory. And so I'm still, you know, struggling. And this lady looked at me and she said, do you need to know right now? And I went, I mean, don't you need to know? Now, whatever it is, you know, I mean, you have, it's not all right not to know. That was my last rule I lived by is it's not all right not to know, you know. Um, and then when she said that, it just stopped me. And she said, well, when do you need to know? And by then I was kind of like, well, two weeks, <laughs> you know, two weeks I need. And she said, why don't you keep doing what you're doing and see how you feel in two weeks? And I didn't realize at the time that it was right out of the book. You know, we relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. We ask for intuitive thought or decision, and we keep on going. And so I kept doing what I was doing for two weeks, and when the time came to make the decision, I decided not to go. You know, and um, it has been, I love when Bill says we're rocketed into the fourth dimension. You know, there is nothing in here about a pink cloud and falling off of the pink cloud. Not a word. Um, you know, to people who want to run up and tell newcomers, watch out, you'll fall off the pink cloud, I would like to ask you, if you fell off, were you doing when you fell off what you were doing when you were on it? You know, because when we're new, we're desperate and we do stuff. And then we get comfortable and we stop doing stuff and then we're not so happy. Hmm, you know. Uh, and I just I just stayed in the middle. And, uh, and over the years, one of the things that happened was, um, I told you grateful people kind of got on my nerves. And there was a, I guess the first week I was out of detox, they made an announcement at this meeting that this man's nine-year-old daughter had been killed by a drunk driver that day. And they passed the basket to, to send flowers. And the next Tuesday, he was at a meeting, at this big book meeting I went to. And I remember thinking, God, what if that had been me? You know, what would my kids remember about me? What, what if it was them? What would their last thoughts of me have been? You know, and I realized, because what he said was it happened right outside a hospital where people did to go do their three-day drunk driving weekend things. And they were all outside on the break. When it, and they saw it. And he said, I have to believe that one of those people maybe will get sober, you know, that this wasn't for nothing. And when I was leaving that day, I was thinking, okay, you know, what if that had been me? What would my kids remember? And I realized I had this chance, this second chance, you know, that I'd been given this gift of some time that I could call my kids right then and tell them that I loved them and that I might never, ever be a normal mom again. You know, I might always only be mom who comes over on the weekends, but that I could be the best mom who comes over on the weekends that I could be. You know, and that if I said I was going to be there Friday at 3, I could be there Friday at 3. And my word could start to be worth something with them. And that's what I set out to do, you know. And uh, and I heard my brain say gift, and I remember thinking, God, where did that come from? You know, but it was the first gratitude I ever felt, you know, because I was not real big on being happy for anything, you know, and especially, like, for other people. I, I remember the first time. Somebody made an announcement, and I was so happy for them, I cried, and it hit me later. It was the first time that I didn't go, where's mine, you know? Um, and it was when Bob and Emily Rich announced they were getting married. And I was so happy, I cried. And, and somebody else got married, a few, you know, six months later, and, 
And I thought, God, that's wonderful. And, and then about a year after that, a girl, and, and I thought, well, I've been sober longer than her. You know? <laughs> this is not right, you know. <laughs> All those other people have been sober a long time. But uh, I, just, I just kept showing up, and I brought my kids to meetings. My kids participated in Alcoholics Anonymous. We went to open meetings all weekend long when I had them because I couldn't have not gone to a meeting. And the other thing, you know, and again, it was God working. My kids got here what I couldn't give them because I was still bankrupt. And they got love here and they got attention and people remembered their names. And they had little meeting bags. They brought coloring books or whatever with them to the meeting. And people would color with them. And people would ask Sarah to help go get the coffee. And, that, you know, they were just, they were part of too. And they got attention. People looked them in the eye when they talked to them, you know, and they just bloomed. And I remember thinking at about, it was, um, Thanksgiving of 89, Robbie was in second grade, and I was thinking, you know, by now I have my driver's license back, and, and all my windows on my car go up and down, and the doors open and close, and, and I had a job, and I think I probably was starting to go back to school, and everything really was looking pretty good, except I needed a man, you know, just to, for Robbie, you know, just for Robbie, because he had all these women in his life, and he needed a man, you know, I was worried about him, and... <laughs> So it was Thanksgiving, and they always put a spread on at Oak Street, and we went up there, and I went to Noon Big Book because that's what I do if it's noon. And when I came out, I couldn't find them. And I, we looked. Somebody said, look across the street. There used to be a school over there, and there was a big field by the school. And here's Robbie, who's seven, and another seven-year-old boy, and four of the guys from Oak Street who are about 20 in football. And it just, you know, every now and then the curtain parts, and I can see without my stuff in the way, you know. And I just saw then it was like, Robbie got exactly what he needed, too, and I had had nothing to do with it. I had had nothing to do with it. What I did was go to Noon Big Book. And where else should a seven-year-old boy be on Thanksgiving except playing football with a bunch of guys? You know, and I didn't plan it, and I didn't arrange it. So I gave, you know, for temporarily gave up the man search, you know. Um, and I ended up, I did, uh, uh, Chuck and I had met in AA. You know, we had crossed paths a little. We didn't really run in the, we didn't really run in the same circles. But we started to uh, run into each other a little more, and um, and we started to date, you know, and um, and we dated, you know, which in AA is like have coffee after the meeting and have coffee before the meeting, and you know I always had to pick somebody up and bring them, and even the New Year's Eve dance, we both ended up going to pick up new people we met there. We took the new people home. We came back and watched a movie, you know. Um, and we set out when we decided, you know, we started thinking that we wanted to spend the rest of our lives together. We we said, you know, God is first in our marriage. God is first and then Alcoholics Anonymous and then we are third. You know, on a good day, on a good day, he's third in my life and that's as high as he's ever going to be. You know, um, and that has carried us through. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful marriage. July will be married eight years. And we have been through, you know, well, the youngest is 16 now, and, and the 18-year-old's three years sober. So we've had, you know, we've had a couple years here lately where uh, we've gotten an up-close personal look at how alcoholism can rip a family apart. And I know that if we didn't have the foundation we had here, I don't think we would have made it, you know. Um, but it was, we even kind of, in hindsight, saw it in practice because this stuff blew apart with Robbie. And we're trying to figure out what to do. And then we said, wait, we haven't prayed, you know. So we went and prayed. And then we said, let's call our sponsors, <laughs> you know. So then we call our sponsors. And then we talked about what to do. And, and it, you know, it hit me about a month ago. I was like, wow, that was like God, AA, each other, you know, pray, call the sponsor, then talk. So it was, it had become so ingrained, you know, that that's how we live now. 
And and thank God, because, you know, there there was a time a year ago that I couldn't have told you that if we would even all four sit in the same room again. It was that bad. And, um, you know, Robbie just drops by the house now. He just drops by, and we spent Christmas together. And my mom sings for a sweet Adeline's chorus over in Indianapolis, and um, we drove over there, the four of us, in one vehicle to see her. And on the way back, we were in this gap kind of between radio towers, and um, all of a sudden I realized we're singing oldies, you know, my orange-haired, mohawked son, my uh, my Christian missionary daughter, you know, <laughs> and uh, and Chuck and I, and we're jamming to the oldies, singing. Nobody's singing the same song at the same time, but it didn't matter, you know. <laughs> and I just thought, God, how did we get here, you know? How did we get here from where we were even a year ago? And it, and it's because of God, you know. And the whole trip has been like that, you know, Bob. Bob, some of you knew, um, he was just kind of, uh, he was a wonderful man in Cincinnati, and he used to tell me every year, he said, this year's been better than the last, and hold on to your hat, you know. And that's what people told me. They didn't say, hey, you know, watch out, you're going to fall off that pink cloud. They just said, keep doing what you're doing. Keep showing up, you know, um, and it will get better and better. And I've gotten to do some tremendous things. My grandfather had a stroke when I was a year sober. And I got to fly out just because, now, I, I had no money, but I had a $500 credit card, you know. And because I had a credit card, I could rent a car, and I could call and charge an airline ticket. And my mom paid for it, but I was able to go see my grandfather and make amends because I hadn't gotten to do that with my dad from treatment. And it was wonderful. He'd had a stroke, you know, and we didn't know if he would ever even wake up. And when I was there, it was like something out of a movie. He, he woke up while I was there, and his eyes cleared. And the next day, he was sitting up, and the day I flew home, he died the next day. And that day I had to give a lead at Oak Street that had been scheduled for two months. And as I sat down to talk, I remember thinking, how could they have known I would need to talk today? You know, and it just hit me that God has, you know, my job is just to show up. And once again, I got that feeling here that I I knew that night getting ready to talk that I was exactly where I was supposed to be. And that that's what I had been looking for my whole life, you know. one of the things I'd love to talk about is, is the book says our attitude and outlook on life will change. You know, and, and I can remember being in treatment and asking people, well, what do you do for fun? <laughs> and the AAs would go, oh, we have dances and we go bowling and we have coffee after the meeting. And I go, but what do you do for fun, you know? <laughs> and then, of course, a year or two later, I'm telling new people, we have dances and we go bowling. We have coffee after the meetings. But... You know, one of the things that happened, the kids had gotten bicycles. We had, we moved, I got out of my apartment and up into the little town, next suburb over from where my kids live. Uh, Mom and I had made a decision. They were in such a good neighborhood that they should stay where they were. Their life had been stable. And I spent the next few years kind of catching back up to them instead of dragging them down to my standard of living. So we had a house in Deer Park, which was just a mile or two away from where they lived, and we had bicycles. They got bicycles for Christmas. And, um, Sarah had a little pink puppy, you know, and Robbie's was a little bigger, and it was black. And then Chuck's mom had given us some money, and we thought, well, we should get bikes, and we can ride with them. And and uh, so we got puppies because they're good, dependable bikes, and, you know, didn't think much of it. And uh, I guess what I got to mention was that I uh, had my own Harley Davidson when I got sober. I drank with bikers. You know what I mean? Nobody messed with me. Everybody I drank with was six foot six. Um, I just was, you know, at biker bars, that was my element. That's, you know, that's where I love to be. So we get these puppies, and <laughs> and I didn't think anything of it, you know. 
And, uh, and we're riding down the street the first warm day, the four of us, you know, going, the kids put on their helmets, and I'm sure we must have put on helmets too, because, you know, lead by example. And I hope nobody sees you. And, uh, <laughs> and we're riding down the road, and, and this uh, guy's out, wave, you know, mowing his grass for spring day, and he waved, and we waved, and about the time I waved, I look over and Chuck's waving, and I just went, oh my God, <laughs> you know? I am on a lavender huffy in Deer Park. <laughs> I used to own a Harley Davidson, for God's sake, you know. And, I mean, you couldn't have told me when I was new that, hey, Beth, two years from now, you're going to be riding a lavender huffy in the suburbs. All right, you know. I wouldn't have believed it. But what really, what you really couldn't have told me was right then there is nowhere else in the world I wanted to be. There is nowhere else I wanted to be except on that huffy with those kids, you know. And what a gift. What a gift for somebody who couldn't even sit still and tell their kids, you know, yeah, I love you, go away, you know. And the kids continued to participate in our lives, and eventually we got custody of them, and we went to our home group, and we handed out candy. It's a boy, it's a girl. Everybody got all excited because we had not been married that long, so they're all thinking, all right, more kids. We're going, no, no, we just got ours back, you know. But, I mean, you can't go to church and tell people that stuff. They just look funny, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I had a boy and a girl. They're 11 and 13. Isn't it great? (laughs) We, uh, oh, we've, we've just been on a journey. You know, we have been on a journey. I've, I've gone back to school. Um, I have initials after my name. I still get a little nervous when I hand people a business card because I think, oh, my God, they're going to think they're talking to a CPA. And I you are a CPA, Beth. You are a CPA. <laughs> so I forget. You know, I still, my sponsor says she gets to work some days and really hopes the grown-up shows up. And uh, that, that makes me feel better because she's been sober a really long time. So if she still feels like that, it's okay for me, you know. Um, I don't know. This has been all about God for me, you know, all about God. Um, I came in with a little conception of God. I didn't do my stuff much. You know, I heard a guy in Seattle. I went to the World Conference in Seattle in 90, and the guy said, he said he never prayed because if he prayed, God would know where he was, you know. <laughs> like that homing beam, you know, oh, we got you now, you know. And that kind of made sense to me. But uh, one of the things the spiritual experience says is, uh, well, there's a couple of things I like in this that, that I'm going to, tell you about and then wrap up um one of the things the spiritual experience says is quite often friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself he finally realizes he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life and um you know that profound alteration and reaction to life i got to witness that when i was about two years sober i was at big book meeting and this girl was eight weeks sober and we read this in the and she talked after and she said you know the first seven weeks had really been great She'd just been floating, and this whole last week had just sucked, you know. And she didn't. She said, "By this morning, I was in so much pain, I didn't know what to do. So I hit my knees and I came to a meeting, and I almost fell off my chair because it's like she didn't even know she had said, you know. But that's not my normal reaction to life, especially eight weeks sober. When I am in pain, my normal reaction to life is not pray and go to a meeting. At least it wasn't then." And she didn't even, I just squirmed, the meeting was over, and I ran over with a book, and I'm like, no, no, it's working, It's because you're here, you know, this is not your, my reaction to life is kill the pain, you know, not pray and go to a meeting. I was so amazed when I found out pain pills were to make the pain manageable. I thought if you could still feel anything, they weren't working, take more, you know. (laughs) Another one of those normal person things, I guess. But, you know, she didn't even realize what she had said, that her, her reaction to life had already changed and she didn't even know it. 
you know. And the other thing I love is is when uh, when they say the most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. You know, and, and I'm an old algebra person. I, I used to tell my kids, you know, math is your friend, and they just look at me and go, uh-huh. <laughs> but algebra is one of those things that never changes. And where if you've got a big hard problem, you can break it down to, like, A plus B equals C, you know, plug in 2 plus 3 equals 5, and then put the bigger numbers back in again. So you have to break it down where you can understand it. And so when I saw this, you know, that, that uh, the spiritual experience is an awareness of the power greater than ourselves, well, then I can go back and look at the steps, you know, and where step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, I can put in, so A equals B, I can put in, having become aware of the presence of God as a result of these steps. You know, and that's what I try to share with new people who are hung up on step three trying to turn it over to God. You know, um, if, if I could do that in step three, I think there'd be three steps. I wouldn't need the rest of them. You know, um, step three is, is just making a decision to take some action. So that's all. And the action is the rest of the steps. And thank God somebody told me that. You know, thank God I have stayed in this book and showed up. And I have a partner who's in the book, you know. And uh, and we have sponsors, and, and we try not to sponsor each other. And we both sponsor a lot of people. And, uh, and we have just been blessed with an active, happy marriage. You know, Thanksgiving morning, we have all the people we sponsor and their families over for breakfast. Because um, Thanksgiving's a stressful kind of a day sometimes. And, and that people can come get grounded in, you know, in an AA environment before they go out and do the family thing. And, and what a gift to have a house, you know, to do that. What a gift to have a daughter who wants to hang out with. I mean, we go to the mall and she walks beside me. I still haven't. I mean, I wanted to be so far away from my mom when I was her age. And she, she goes with me and she hangs out with Chuck. You know, she adores Chuck. And, uh, and Robbie's part of our lives again. And, uh, and you can't get to there from where we were you know I, I wish you could hear Chuck talk today too um neither one of us is going to be qualifying for any high bottom drunk trophy you know what I mean and and to get to where we are from where we were that's all I need to know about the power of God because under my own power the very best I could do was have someone else raising my children someone else was in possession of my car and I was on my last place to live you know and when I came here and I did what was in this book and I got a sponsor and I have been sponsored all, all through these years, I have a, a beautiful life, you know, and, and God is everywhere in my life. It's like the more I look, the more I see him, you know, he's everywhere. And now looking back, like I said, looking back, I can see that he always was there, but I was so busy doing other things, I just couldn't notice, you know. Um, and I am so glad to be here. And it, it's nice to see Pat. He was a DJ at our wedding. And... Uh, what a gift to have history with people, you know, because um, the old way was using friends up and just moving on. I think I heard Peg once talk about it was like a cat, you know, till the sandbox gets full and you just go get a new sandbox. And that's, that's kind of how alcoholics and friends work, you know. And, uh, and we, you know, we have history with Pat and, and we have history with some people here. And, and uh, I'm just really glad to be here. Thanks.